Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebecca. Welcome to Rebecca Live, uh, episode, I believe, 282. Cranking it out. Uh, Wednesday morning in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and very lucky today. We've, all, we've actually had a pretty interesting last year. The world has started to open back up. It's starting to um, get a bit of movement. You've got some vaccine passports coming up. You've got all sorts of New Zealanders looking safe and well and awesome, which is bloody great. And we had this idea around, so now what? Um, so, the, you know, before pandemic... There were a lot of people talking about disruptions coming and this and that and da da blah, blah, blah. Well, now it's very fair to say a lot has actually shifted. The world has fundamentally changed in terms of pretty much every single thing that exists um, globally. So what better way to kick off? Um, so now what? I'm asking the question of, so now what do we do as society, as, as humans, as a nation, as a country, as, as whatever it may be, then um, founder of Innovation Matters, Roger Dennis. How are you, mate? Yoda, how you doing? Body A-OK. Okay. Uh, well framed, well light, looking good there, mate. Happy with happy with that. You you stressed out a little bit before about it, but you know I think you've done a great job. So well done. It's amazing what makeup can do. <laughs> there you go. Um, so let's ask this question. So the world a, a year a year and a bit ago the world stopped. Everyone talked about the reset, the recalibrate, the you know the reboot, the the refresh, the reflipping everything, reimagine the. Like, I think the word re got used more times than the word disruption in the last year than the last 10 years. <laughs> so, so maybe if we fast forward now a year and we go, okay, so Roger Dennis, you know, futurist, big thinker, macro, zoom out. So now what? It's a very good question. And I feel like we're in the, still in the middle of a reset. And the reason I say that is because if you think about economics, for example, and you think back to uh, January 2020, if you're an economist in January 2020 and you suggested actually that the way economics should work would be effectively to fly a helicopter uh, over the countryside dropping bags of money, you would have been burnt at the stake for being a heretic, essentially. 12 months later, even six months later, so the middle of last year, that wasn't heresy. That was actually, uh, let's do more of that. Let's print more money. And when are you going to stop printing money? Because we don't want that to end because the markets love having money sloshing around. So I think it's fascinating to think about what is actually being reset at this time and what has changed and what hasn't changed particularly in terms of thinking about what paradigms have been shattered. So there's a great paradigm just there. I've talked about economic theory is now in the middle of a great reset. Whatever economic theory lands in the next 12 months will shape the world for the next 12 decades. But it's just changing in a way that no one's actually taking a hard look at some of these things and going, hmm, what does that mean? How would that work out? What if or if then, then that? So maybe, are you talking to, okay, so let's zoom back just a little bit. Do you think that humanity is rushing for these new solutions before actually thinking about what the problem actually is? Or do you feel that um, this is the right time for the right tech to, to take us to a better place? Like how's your headspace thinking about, because a lot of times with human history, humans' instincts and emotions get to the forefront 
they go do shit, they'd be reactionary. And the next thing you know, you're, you're potentially stuck with systems that may not have been the, the most well thought out. Have you got f fear about um, the decisions that, that we're making for these new systems and the ways things are working? Like where's your headspace on that? Definitely concerned about that because there is a lot of vested interest in keeping the current systems working. But it's very clear that the current systems or the systems that existed pre-pandemic weren't really fit for purpose. So this whole idea of um, yeah. trickle-down wealth, that doesn't really quite work now because we know that after a few decades of pursuing those economic theories that we have record inequality where a handful of people have more wealth than the rest of the entire population. Uh, if you and think about think through this pandemic, it was the same thing, right? The, the top 1% actually got richer in this last in yes. this last year when no one was doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's why I'm very wary of subject matter experts making proclamations around what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Because if you look back to the last 12 months, then when the world first hit sort of pandemic shock, uh, there were plenty of economists saying it's going to be a W-shaped recession, V-shaped uh, recovery, W-shaped recovery, V-shaped recovery, L-shaped recovery. It's like they were standing in front of this Sesame Street box filled with alphabet-shaped letters and just pulling them out at random, right? But now people are saying it's a K-shaped recovery, right? It's totally unequal. And so people looking back, and going, of course it's a K-shaped recovery. Of course it was. But at the time, no one predicted, for example, that ski fields in Aotearoa would be the busiest ever on record, that house prices around the world would keep on booming. Nobody predicted that. And what we have now are complex systems interacting in really difficult ways. Complex systems are always very uh, hard, if not impossible, to predict. But now we have multiple complex systems evolving in ways which might not uh, be the best to equip humanity for a difficult and volatile future. So on that around, do you think that people have underestimated human nature of what people would do? Like uh, like right now, um, you know, when a year ago, uh, transportation went through the to the flipping ground, right? Everything went to zero. Carnival cruises staffed, American Airlines staffed, everyone staffed, New Zealand staffed, everyone staffed. Now, I was talking to someone two weeks ago that said, um, the the booking system that does rebookings on their travel site cannot almost keep up with the amount of influx that's coming through now. Because I guess no one thought about the fact a year ago, th instead of thinking, hey, everyone's at zero, they said, well, humans are going to get locked up for the next year. They're going to get very antsy. And the second they can get out and flip and do something, they're going to town. Like per another example is in the States, golfing. Golf in the States is blowing up you can't even get onto a flipping teeth uh, um, a golf course until almost a week in advance just because it's the only thing that's basically open no one can go anywhere else to do anything and that's basically what's happening so do you think that we're still so short-sighted in our thinking for what humans will actually do well there's a couple of things there first of all this level of social disruption is really unprecedented in modern history so previously, it's you know, been accepted that there'll be pandemics and that we'll just have to deal with the mortality rate. This time around, that's been quite different. And we've said actually lock the world down because that mortality rate is unacceptable. Now, as we move out of continuous lockdowns in some countries around the world, 
does that acceptance of different mortality rates change or does it stay the same? Um, secondly, you know, when it comes to social behaviours, you know, people are, you know, inherently social creatures and therefore the need for close social contact, I think, is always going to sit there. What really concerns me, though, about the, the current thinking in terms of how we use the opportunity is that, you know, the largest existential problem right now is climate change. And I'm concerned that in the rush to get back to whatever normal might look like, that the opportunity to do a reset around climate change will be lost. And to give some context around that, for example, in um, Iceland, six months ago, I think it was, the uh, Prime Minister announced that the majority of government efforts to restart the economy were going to be focused on those that mitigated the risk of future climate change. Hmm. So actually saying, we're going to actually invest in the economy, we're going to drop money into the economy, but we're actually going to focus on initiatives to reduce the impact of uh, climate change going forward. That's good use that, of it. That I mean, I, I saw reports coming out of LA um, when all the cars stopped and then it all opened up and they said it was the clearest they've ever had like um, in the air there for, for absolute years. I think you are right. There's been more of a rush to get back to how it was so people can go and do what they did instead of a bigger macro conversation around what could or, or should be in terms of restructuring the way is that word flipping read again. Um, anything else? And does that get you because look, if after a year of the world doing nothing, we haven't learnt, will we ever? <laughs> like how shit are we dude <laughs> like it's it's the way when you say like it just sounds really bad i think crises are really good for sort of shocking people into thinking hard about what needs to be done but the problem is that any systems have inertia in them and inertia slows down whatever change you want to create along the way and then also you have uh, necessary inertia in sort of official systems. So if you think about that, I used to think that uh, government bureaucracy was a, um, a force to be uh, fought, reckoned with. But if you think about what's happened in the States, then the only thing slowing down the complete death of democracy in the States arguably was inertia in bureaucratic systems, which meant that any half-formed thought blasted out to the world in crayon on Twitter didn't actually get turned into government policy overnight because it had to go through the process and the process slowed things down. So in some respects, that's good. However, climate change is something where you need to go a lot faster than where we're going right now. That's not so good. And equality, you need to be going faster than where we are right now and also slowing down, not so good. So these are sort of fundamental issues around the way modern society in Western developed countries has structured itself, where there needs to be a quite a considerable level of thought put into how we emerge from this in a way that suits, you know, the current situation, not just reverting back to 2019. So down that right that opens up a bit of a can of worms because if you're saying that the reason we don't have speed is because the inertia that exists in these bigger ecosystems then 
the question I would ask is how do you create a new system <laughs> to, to do it faster? And then not that yes. we translate, because if that's the question you got to ask, because reliable, like, reliable data equals reliable results. And if we've consistently shown that, you know, with that structure, we move at a certain pace um, and that's not going to be good enough, then how do you think that actually manifests itself? I mean, the only thing I could start to think of is maybe in the finance space where you look at what blockchain and crypto is trying to do and starting to do to try and, you know, eliminate the middlemen. How do you view replacing systems if, it, if they need to, if they need to be placed and how would you do it or what, what would it be or what would you do? And so without being facetious, that's the right question to ask. And at the moment, I think we need to be asking more of those sorts of questions because the world doesn't need more programmers. It needs more philosophers right now. And you need to spend more time asking difficult questions to start hard conversations around how you would actually start to pull this off. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm sure if we had enough of the right people with the right experience around the table, you could start to get to an approximate solution to some of this rather than an exact one. And I think you need to have sort of approximate answers to the right questions rather than the right answers to the wrong questions. Well, the danger... So I've got... I'm only, I'm only 35 now, but I've got to come up and look at power above I've got to sit next to power now and I was really naive younger looking at how things actually worked. You know, I'm just like, stuff that, jits whack, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've got no, I've got no context of the relationships and the money and, and how things work together and the systems you need. Like, you, you know, you just think like, stuff, the people are broken, the shit's broken, the shit's whack. And I always get, you know, interested when I see, um, like there was even, some people that were trying to break into like the Chase Bank Center in New York or something like the other day. And you've got these like homeless looking flipping happy dudes trying to scale walls and all sorts of shit. And I didn't feel like the people that are the most like, um, not saying philosophers or crazy intellectually articulate or whatever it is, there's always very much a disconnect between those that are bitching about it and those that actually understand it in terms of what they look like, talk like, sound like, the questions they ask and whatever. And a lot of the times when I think about um, power now, maybe it's those that actually know what's up aren't in a position to actually ask that question because they're usually paid by someone or something that's got to do with that system. <laughs> and I can say this from firsthand knowledge from multiple people who have positions within multiple big things. And there's definitely a public versus a private thing. So I guess my question, Roger Dennis, um, would be, how do you start to have more of these tougher questions asked from people that are intellectually capable enough in the right rooms without potentially jeopardizing their own paychecks or their own interests or their own whatever? Because the right people do know the right questions to ask. It feels like they're not um, pushing post. <laughs> yeah, and they have a vested interest, but behind closed doors, um, what I'm seeing is uh, boards and chief execs are all asking the same question, which is what the hell is going on? Mm. And so they're asking the right question, but uh, having a public view on that and putting it out in a way that is a coherent response 
I think is the challenge for people because I think there's a lot of pressure to have the right answer. So if you've got the question and the question, yeah, yeah, because you ask the question, it makes it look like you don't know, yeah, yeah, and you don't want to be seen to not knowing the answer because all sorts of questions get asked, right? So if you're you're in the system and you're part of the mechanism that controls the system, you don't have the answer to the difficult question, then what the hell are you doing in the first place? Right? But the truth is, no one really knows the right answers, but there are definitely the right questions to be asking. Mm. I was, uh, a few years ago when I um, had the media company, we were going to do a day and it was going to be this, uh, this mini content summer and it was going to be for brand managers and marketing managers and all this shit to come in, blah, blah. And I talked to my mentor about it. I was like, oh, it's going to be epic. They're all going to come in. We could just, you know, Q&A, ask everything and help them all out and give them all the tools, tell them what they need to do, blah, blah. And he goes, man, you're dumb. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? It's going to be awesome. He's like, so you're telling me that all these marketing managers are all going to come into a room. I was like, yes. And they're all going to sit down next to each other and they're going to, you know, you're going to do some presentation. Like, yes, I get that much. He goes, and then you're going to, and then one of them's just going to, they're going to start just doing like open Q and A for everything. I was like, yes. He's like, that's not going to happen. And I was like, what do you mean? They're all going to be in the room. It's going to be sweet. Kumbaya shit. He goes, no, no. So John in the middle stands up and asks the question, Hey, what's Twitter? Oh, hey, how should I embed a HTML code from a flipping YouTube video into a WordPress plugin? And then everyone else in the room is going, dude, John from flipping Sky City, that dude doesn't even know what HTML code means. He flipping John from or like Sally from the TAB's marketing department doesn't even know how to and and he goes, it will actually have the opposite effect because their title is imposed this layer of they are supposed to know everything about everything that even by being in that room and asking a question shows weakness, which will actually be a detriment to their business, their brand and everything. And I was like, I'd never thought of that. And he goes, it's because they have the title of it. And it's the same thing on LinkedIn. The most critical people on LinkedIn are the LinkedIn lurkers. And what the LinkedIn <laughs> lurkers are, it's the, C it's the CEOs, it's the managing directors, it's the chairs of the boards. It's all these people who are, they watch everything but they, they never like, they comment or share on any of it. Why? Because if flipping old mate from telco number one is then just ragging on old mate number two, or if someone gives someone else, um, you know, their biggest competitors, creative agency props for a thing, all of a sudden they look like that their business is actually doing it, not them. So there is this, I think you're right there, Roger, there is a very much a, there's something broken around a safe way for ideas to be asked without the titles and the impositions and the weight of these businesses going it. So I think if you could start that off, that might be a better start for it. Do you think that New Zealand as a whole has the capability to do that? Do you think they can do that? Do you think they should do that? And do you think they will do that? Wow. Uh, so once again, more good questions. And um, the interesting thing about New Zealand and other countries of a similar size is that it seems like five, six million people creates a system which is you know, large enough to have impact, but small enough to be flexible and agile. So potentially you could get 100 of the right people in a room to have a Chatham House style conversation around some of these really difficult questions, that would be fascinating. 
So if anyone wants to help organize that with me, I'd love to do that. Because um, I'm pretty sure between you and I, we could get the right 100 people in the room. Um, well, it's similar to that but, other thing we did, right? The, the strategic insights panel. It's that round two, but for a, a, a something kind of specific around a theme or a topic, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and sort of also to that as well, one thing that I'm trying to do to raise um, awareness of some of these questions outside of my immediate client group is, um, so I've set up a newsletter, uh, which, which you get called Just One Thing. And the idea is that it cuts through a whole bunch of noise and every two or three weeks, you get a, you know, a little thought bomb which focuses on just one thing that will help you filter out all the noise and just look at a signal, which is really important. And I've found that, you know, I'm sending it to a whole bunch of people that I've uh, invited to that list. And the feedback has been fascinating because by just focusing on one thing at a time, you start to get people asking the right questions as opposed to you know a torrent of information where you know newsletters get judged by the number of links they have in them rather than the level of thought in them. Mm. Um, if you were the government now in this last year, or say even even now for this reset, what would you be proactively doing to try and get more of? the right questions asked or enabled, or even just asked to start with, or do you think it is a responsibility of government if we know that they're the ones that are responsible for these, the big wheels to, to keep on turning? You know, if you if we, if we you believe the old way is broken, how would you build the new? Uh, it has to be a combination of public sector and private sector. Mm. And that's because essentially what happens is government sets the constraints and the rules and the boundaries and then the private sector works to innovate within those constraints. And so the, the macro sort of comparison to that is when you have a brainstorming session, you can have the coolest beanbags, the greatest glass walls, the best whiteboard markers in the world, you know, the best brownies and snacks and the table in the middle, and the conversation will go all over the place and you won't get anything productive out of that. But if the conversation is actually bounded by a certain question or certain constraints, you actually get to quite a productive output in that same time because the conversation is directed and it's controlled and it's not going everywhere. You have to have an outcome which dictated by those boundaries. And so that's the same thing between, I think, the, the tension between the public sector and the private sector as government sets the boundaries for the private sector to operate in. So, you know, I always sort of get frustrated when people say, you know, New Zealand needs a vision. It's a very private sector view. I do sort of happen to agree with it. But if you think about visions, visions are very corporate driven because they work within boundaries, whereas countries don't necessarily work within boundaries and governments don't because they've got, you know, so many complex systems they're playing with. It's a lot easier for a corporate to say, you know, we want to focus on this and here's our vision for that. Whereas at a country level, it's much harder. But I think if you put the two together, you end up with something much more powerful than either working on their own in isolation. So how do you start to affect, affect that change? Like what, what can you do specifically? How do you 
lecture and well you can ask these questions but then then what because you know like i um i have a lot of thoughts about lots of different things i put lots of ideas out into the ether i like to you know do that like but i'm just sort of one human just doing one thing right do you try to like tweak the cruise ship you try to build a new boat do you try to blow up the old boat? Do you try to stay in the speedboat? Do you try to just stay swimming by yourself? Do you do you know what I mean? Like there's um, like I I think back to when I was first been on the content agency. I I had this idea of like you know, I either acquire a bunch of other tier two agencies and we we go up we try and become a one, or and at the same time you're gonna have a whole bunch of people that leave the the tier one agencies that start their own little number threes. Or do you try and get in the tier ones and then blow it up from the inside or actually be able to see and get, get context? So there's kind of different strategies when you come to, when you think about outcome. So in New Zealand right now, the, you know, the, the small little speedboats are, you know, one little two man bands, but with no real engine behind them, you've got the big engines that, you know, have the, the corporate backing or they've got the influence of others or whatever it may be. And you've obviously got government on top. Like how would you, if you wanted to try and have the most impact for, New Zealand, maybe it's a selfless question, maybe, maybe not, maybe my insecurity is asking for myself. Um, how do you, how do you think it can do it to not only go from a moment to a movement? How do you start to do that? Um, another great question. I think that, so first we think about New Zealand, the business environment, um, it's a ridiculously high percentage of organizations organizations under I think 20 people that make up New Zealand's business landscape over 90% I think it is from memory 97% so is under here we small go. businesses with under 20 staff is 97% is of New Zealand yeah it's insane there we are that's the number yeah it's a lot so you've only got a handful of very large organizations in this country anyway um, and in terms of how you start to move that dial I'm more and more interested in this idea of um, missions. And this comes from an economist, uh, Maria Mazzucato, um, who's very, very popular right now. She's, you know, if you have a celebrity economist, if it's such a thing, she, she's it right now. Um, but it sort of stems back to, uh, if you think about um, the Apollo missions from the States, where very clear focus, one goal, put man on the moon, put lots of effort into that and there's been other you know examples of that around the world um, since then but if you you think about what that does it actually starts to focus effort and thinking and funding into an area which is hopefully going to spur you know, more returns in the right direction so one of the things that I'm really interested in. So what if you had a mission to uh, develop a small passenger aircraft that could go Auckland to Dunedin, Auckland, Queenstown nonstop that was electrically powered that could carry a certain number of passengers? And because um, New Zealand's got quite a high level of um, aviation engineering expertise, because we're a tourist country, because we want to be sustainable and clean and green, it makes sense for New Zealand to have a goal or a mission around that with a certain time frame, with certain constraints, with certain goals. And this sort of gets back to the, you know, the X Prize. The whole X Prize idea is around 
you know, hit a certain target or a goal by a certain time and win a certain amount of money. And it's not really the money incentive that does it. It's this, I think, very human um, competitive streak around, you know, trying to be first at something and trying to be first at something which actually makes sense to be first at. So if you look at um, uh, the original X Prize, which was essentially put a reusable spacecraft into um, suborbital space so many times in a short period of time. So I think it was three times in two weeks or something. And the prize for that was inconsequential, like maybe a million dollars. The engineering effort that went into that just completely dwarfed the prize money. But there was something around that competitive environment and that mission, that nature, which actually meant that it spurred a whole bunch of innovation around that, mm. that thing. So, you know, I think if New Zealand was really smart around its response, the government could set up, you know, a mission-driven approach to this where you said, actually, here are three things that matter to New Zealand's economy, right? Maybe reducing emissions from agriculture, um, having an electrically driven tourism industry, um, you know, something along those lines where you had constraints and boundaries and you said, actually, okay, here's the, here's the start line, here's the constraints, here's boundaries, go. Mm. Um, and right okay. now... And, and in that environment, this environment, New Zealand's got a huge advantage because innovation works really well when you can get people around a table with jugs of coffee and a whiteboard as opposed to over Zoom. And there's very few places in the world where you can actually do that right now, and New Zealand is one of them. So the, the opportunity is to set up this, this mission challenge and actually invite people down to New Zealand, some of the smartest brains, you know, give them some entry path in via you know, a visa scheme like the Global Impact Visa from the Evan Hillary Fellowship, and then say, come on down, here's the challenge. You know, you could change the equation for attracting talent to New Zealand forever. That's interesting. Gamify world problems, but using the logistics of what we have that others don't, which just becomes the asset, not the liability. I, that's, I, I have actually been thinking about that. Actually, I'll just quickly show Malcolm's thing before he said, uh, go by modal, keep the existing system running with, um, with you have a lean strategic group getting wins, uh, building the new and slowly move the existing systems people across based on their eagerness for change. That can be a slow yes. pull as you just slowly, you know, slowly pull, pull, pull the, the sides across instead of trying to, you know, maybe that is the route. You don't. Um, it's a tango. You don't just switch from um, and and to blow one up and just jump into the other. It's going to be a slow tango. But maybe one leads to start, and then the other one, as it gets tired, slowly just you know drops out to the, the ether. Um, yes. I, I I do like this idea. This the, the mission thing. It becomes very clear, and um, what's become clearer and more focused over time is that the the people who do the most just get insanely singular in focus you know like um just insanely you know when you watch um you know even down to athletes you know like watching the last dance with michael jordan and just watching his headspace of how he approached it with just like a like insane tenacity for a thing and then you hear these st stories of you know steve jobs with all this crazy stuff it was just like maniacal focus for a thing and you know that comes at a lot of time kind of maybe against not Kiwiism or whatever, but you know, uh, 
to look like an arsehole going after something that you want makes you look like an arsehole when all you talk about is that one thing because that's all you care about. <laughs> but then on the flip side, you know, like if you put you put that on one side and the average Kiwi like, ah, it's all good, we'll be sweet, she'll be right, mate. It's kind of two almost uh, – okay, mate, I'll, I'll rephrase it. If New York was New Zealand and for one whole year the world was stopped but the energy and people in New York were in New Zealand – I've got a funky feeling there might have been a bit more hustle when it comes to commercial opportunity around <laughs> <laughs> what could or couldn't be done in the in this country compared to the rest of the world. I have a very strong feeling that that is a fair statement. Yes, I think it is. The flip side would be the level of grit and resilience of New Yorkers to cope in the midst of an existential crisis would be significantly lower than how New Zealanders would cope. And so when I look at these comparisons, I don't so much look at them in terms of, you know, the, the whole country would be X or the whole city would be Y. You need to have a real mix of talents to make these things work. And so you might have that um, totally focused leader that's just relentless on one thing. But when you sort of open the hood, you'll find a bunch of people working on a whole bunch of different things. And I think historically, New Zealanders have been really good generalists, which has been great. Because I remember when I went to London first in my um, late 20s, and um, I did a whole bunch of stuff. I remember punting my CV around different agencies and uh, on my CV was a whole whole list of things I did really well, as you do in New Zealand in a small market. And they would go, well, well what do you actually do? And I'd go, well, I do all that stuff. And they go, no, no, you can't do all that. What, what do you actually do? And then I very quickly learned to drop off 80% of the stuff that I'd done in my work career to focus on one thing. They go, that's good. We can we can find a job for you doing that. I'm like, yeah, I can do a whole bunch of other stuff as well, right? So I think New Zealanders, because of our you know small size, we're really good generalists, and I think that could potentially do us quite well as a cultural benefit in terms of some of these missions, because you know the nature of solving them is going to require a whole bunch of different skills, not just being totally focused on the hustle, for example. So if you look at what Peter Beck's done with. Um, uh, you know, his work with Rocket Lab, I think that's nothing short of extraordinary. And if you'd said to me a decade ago, New Zealand will have a, you know, up and coming space industry that's rivaling some of the billionaires around the world, you know, even I would have looked at you a bit odd, but he's made that work by having, mm. you know, a, a single drive and focus with a whole bunch of really interesting generalists, I suspect, plus a few imported specialists. It seems like a good mix to go forward. Yeah, just say that again because I think it was really interesting. So you go, what was it? You had one. What did you? Just, how did you describe that? Because I think that's a, that was almost like the perfect combo. It was one. So you're one really leader. focused leader, right? Yeah, one focused You've got a whole leader. bunch of generalists who are able to apply different skills to a problem to try and solve it, and then probably a few imported specialists who are really, really good in some of those problem areas who can move you along quite a way that you wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve by relying on local expertise. That's, 
It's a great. It's extremely accurate. Most Kiwis would be probably just a number two. That's just a pretty good generalist. It's in um in Hollywood they call them slashies. You know, it's a waiter <laughs> slash director slash actress slash photographer slash editor slash videographer slash director of photography. You know, it's just everything. You're a slasher. You're you're a definite slasher. You're you're a man of all trades. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I am. I am full slashy, like one hundred percent. Because I had to be like I I remember for me like even when we started like the first website and stuff I literally designed it coded it wrote everything on it shot every photo on it featured in it edited it everything like you had to do it and and obviously I wasn't the best at all of it I was probably like a B or a C but when everyone else is just not doing anything and then you win by default because you just do everything and it's just at least it's done. <laughs> you kind of win. But it does I'm raise that question. Project. Like in, in Hollywood, would slashies produce the best horror films? No. Slashies doing slashes? No, 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 no. But I don't think that you can. So now, so I, my approach is totally different now. Now I am kind of like, okay, what can I delegate and eliminate and delete out of my life that I'm shit at, that I do not enjoy, that doesn't bring me energy, that doesn't, bring me any type yeah. of good stuff that shit like yeah like chris i think it's chris rock has a saying he's like you know you could you could drive your feet with you you could drive your car with your feet if you want to but that doesn't make it a good idea <laughs> you know <laughs> and it's so good because it's for so many times when you think of like you know say the 97 percent of small businesses or whatever it may be so many of the time they're like oh no but i have to do the this 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 and they have to do all of it it's like well you don't, you choose to, and you're doing it pretty shitly. Is that the best use of your time? And you don't think of your time that different way. So maybe it's just, you know, a bit of a lack of self-awareness for generalists. Because I'm imagining these number three specialists that you talk about probably get paid more than the generalists, but then they probably don't, and the generalists probably don't have the equity of the owner as well. So I think, you know, maybe it does help to, 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 to level up the nation, maybe go from generalist to specialist, maybe. Maybe not. Depends. Yeah. Depends I mean, if you look at where your joy comes from, right? But yeah. Look at Switzerland, for example, right? So Switzerland, I it's find it a fascinating country, you know, accumulated significant wealth arguably through, you know, financial services which are probably more opaque than they should be. But they also have really, really good engineering, deep specialist engineering skills. And you look at that and you think, well, there's a tiny country that just really deeply specializes in certain areas and then exports those skills. So if you want to bore a tunnel through a mountain, you want to put a, you know, a chairlift over a difficult, uh, difficult mountain range or whatever, you just go to the Swiss, right? You want to do some really complex, um, you know, chemical production, Swiss are really good at that stuff as well. Pharmaceutical, Swiss again. Mm. Yeah, niches. Hmm. I think you know, so a, a buddy of mine's in the, the money space venture stuff and he goes, mate, New Zealand has the best creativity, but we are just shit at commercialization of it. We don't yes. want to ask for the cash. We don't want to make the cash off it. We want to keep it real and all this other shit. And then no one has any money. And it's like, well, but he said the, the, the ingenuity that exists here rivals mm. and everyone talks about it. He goes, but you travel around and then you, you compare the amount of people they have with what they actually export and the range of things that they export towards the stuff that gets created in New Zealand for only 6 million people. It's, it's pretty mind blowing, you know? So it's in yeah. our DNA to be, you know, creative and create and to push. So before we go on, ask me one, one more thing. So say in this next 12 months, if you were a 
individual, what would the one thing you'd focus on? If you're a business, what's the one thing you'd focus on? And then if you're the government, what was the one thing? So you've got three tiers, one big thing. Next one year, or say by Christmas. By Christmas, what is the one big thing that an individual, a business, and the government should uh, focus on to niche down and get the most up disproportional upside for the nation? Can you ask me a hard question? <laughs> I think I've given you some good ones today, actually. I think I'm quite <laughs> impressed with that. <laughs> um, as an individual, um, I would be looking to start some difficult conversations with friends and colleagues around the opportunity for New Zealand. And by that, it's not just, wow, we've got a travel bubble opening in a week's time with Australia. Isn't that awesome? Uh, I think it's actually how would we continue to leverage the crisis that's going on around the world and to give some context around that. Uh, in New Zealand and out in Australia, you're very fortunate in that um, we are sort of in this paradise where we can have face-to-face -face meetings, we can go to pubs and bars. You know, I've been to two or three concerts where there's been tens of thousands of people in the last two or three months, which in some parts of the world just seems like an alien planet. Um, and people are really getting caught up in vaccine optimism. But if you do the numbers on vaccinations, so we're doing maybe like 6 million a day globally, uh, you want to hit 75, 80% population to really make a vaccination program work, then actually it's going to take at least another two or three years before you vaccinate the globe. And in the meantime, the pandemic is going to change and shift and the virus is going to mutate. And it's it's potentially high likely that um, the current vaccines won't be as effective. So actually having a country that it remains COVID free is a huge advantage on a world stage. And what do we do to take advantage of that? We don't just open a travel bubble. There must be other things. So that's as an individual, I'll be thinking around what is it that New Zealanders can do or New Zealand as a nation can do to really leverage this once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, that's the first thing. Have difficult conversations with colleagues, start a national conversation around that. The second thing, as a business, uh, I would be looking at how can we innovate faster in our particular area, given what I said before, we can put everyone in a meeting room, have a problem on a whiteboard, throw ideas around over jugs and jugs of coffee or beers or late night or whatever to actually out-innovate the rest of the world because the rest of the world is currently stuck in Zoom rooms where you don't get non-verbal cues very easily, where you miss out on this very you know, social requirement of innovation. So you could actually out-innovate global competitors from New Zealand simply from the fact that we're COVID-free. And then as a government, I would be saying, <clears throat> What the hell can we do to leverage this crisis, given that we have low productivity, we have high inequality, we have poor house prices, uh, we don't attract as much talent as we should. What can we do in the next 12 months, next 24 months, to attract some of the world's best talent to New Zealand and make it attractive enough so that half of them will stay 
and we change the equation for global talent in New Zealand to kick off whole new industries that we wouldn't otherwise have. Get me very hopeful for the future, my friend. Um, if people want to, and the great answers as well, if people want to try and sneak onto your email list, your secret little, you know, little Illuminati EDM, how do they, how do they, if they, if they want to try and get to you, how do they try and do it? If they, if they want in, how do they get in? So it's invitation only. You send an email to me, which is now, N-O-W, at rogerdennis.com, R-O-G-E-R-D-E-N-N-I-S.com, and you tell me why you want to be on the list. Um, it's very, very easy to add your name to most email lists around the world and flood your inbox with stuff that you never read. I actually want people that are interested, purposely interested in understanding at a high level what's going on in the world. And therefore, if you want to subscribe, um, cross that barrier. little hurdle to jump before you get onto the list. I get it. Earn it. Earn your turns. Um, appreciate your time, Roger. Best of luck. And I also um, yeah, thank for your time because I know you're a very busy man, but I love the good macro chats that we get to have. So um, stay safe, be good, and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Cheers, Robert. Appreciate it, brother. Shot, bro. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Dennis, absolute flipping champ. Uh, innovation, uh, innovation matters. Get on his email list now at rogerdennis.com. Email him. Get in there. Learn some shit. Have a good day, team. Peace.